0: Welcome to META Talks. This podcast is brought to you by META. We support startups, industry and government with sustainable technology-driven innovation. Here you will hear from amazing individuals on topics around startups, innovation, sustainability and dive deeper into industries like aerospace or energy. Welcome to the latest episode of Meta Talks. I'm your host, Will, co-founder and partner at Meta. And today we're talking to Professor Tim Benton. He's the Research Director of Emerging Risks, and he's the Director of the Energy, Environment, and Resources Program at Chatham House. And he's also my dad. So this is a bit of an interesting personal-professional combination. It's a very interesting dive through sustainability, climate, policy, consumerism, capitalism, all things in between. So it's a bit bit of a heavy hitting episode. So grab a cup of tea if that's your drink of choice and get ready for a 45-minute chat around all things sustainability and climate change. As always, thanks for being with us and enjoy the show. Thank you very much for being here. Give us a quick introduction to you personally, and then we'll go through what you're doing professionally.
1: So my name is Tim Benton. I am Research Director in Emerging Risks and I run the kind of Sustainability Research Group at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London.
0: Awesome. And how did you end up at Chatham House? Because you've got a rather extensive academic background and research background. What was the route to the position you're in now?
1: Oh, what a complicated question. So I started off as a academic ecologist working on various issues to do with the evolution and ecology of wildlife. And then I started playing around with trying to understand population dynamics, particularly with an interest in biodiversity and why we were losing species and so on, and did a lot of work on understanding the causes which drive populations up or down. I then moved to thinking about, well, it's fine working in the lab and using model species, but I wanted to kind of do some real world work and switched into doing stuff to do with the sustainability of agriculture. Then very quickly realised that the sustainability of agriculture was not a technological issue, was not to do with supply, but was to do with the food system and demand. Got started getting interested in policy, worked for a number of years as a cross-government advisor, moving out of academia on the challenges around food. Went back briefly into academia as a dean for strategic research at the University of Leeds and then moved into Chatham House when the policy side of my interest really began to take off so a lifetime encapsulated in a 30 seconds of explanation there but really it's all about understanding under what circumstances environmental degradation will impact on populations, human populations, the economic growth of societies and the environment in which we sit, because there are obviously feedback loops between all of those.
0: Yeah. And and you spent a bit of time pre-Chatham House as the, just so I get the, the title right, the champion on the UK's global food security program. That was your kind of first foray into kind of broad policy type work that was a new position or new kind of part of that entity in UK government I think I'm right in saying right? So I
1: was uh, academic working and publishing lots of papers on sustainability in agricultural systems and then 2007-8 and 2010-11 we had a global food price spike partly caused by climate change impacts and the driving up of food prices around the world led to a kind of a re-engagement politically of the importance of securing food supplies to to feed people after decades of kind of just assuming we'd solved that problem in in the past. The UK government and research environment put together an institution called the Global Food Security Programme to examine this. This was a partnership of the UK research funders and government departments with an interest in food And I was appointed to lead that to try and get both the the issues of food more broadly discussed across government departments and the devolved administrations, and particularly to look for where there were particular challenges for which we should be investing in finding solutions. And one of the really interesting things about that was, of course, that different policy areas have very, very different views on where the challenges associated with food are. And they typically don't see the system in which they're embedded. They look at things through particular silos. So you have a whole lot of policy incoherence in the way that the Department of Health deals with food issues versus the way DEFRA and food production deals with food issues and the way that trade deals with food issues and so on. And part of the challenge of my last decade has been to try and develop a kind of systemic understanding of where all the parts fit together and therefore how we can transform things to produce better outcomes, not just economically, the traditional lens by which governments see food systems, but also from a people perspective and nutrition and from a planetary perspective, particularly around soils, biodiversity and primarily climate change.
0: So that that's making everyone speak the same language and ideally look at everything from the same point of view. We had a, a recent conversation with Dom Hallas from Codec talking about the struggles, but enjoyable struggles of trying to get startups and government talking the same political and entrepreneurial language in terms of trying to get the various UK government departments talking the same language, but also understanding the bigger problems. What's that process been like? Is it ongoing? Is it slightly better than it was 10 years ago? (laughs) Well, it's slightly better.
1: I think the fundamental issue was not so much talking the same language. It was developing a common conceptual understanding of how their bit of the system fitted with other bits of the system. So part of my background from kind of mathematical ecology perspective was being a systems modeler and systems thinker and actually the kind of drive to take a systemic view you know has been going for a decade or so and it's now really gaining traction that people are recognizing that supply chains and nutrition and environment and farming and biodiversity loss and climate change they're all part of the same system and they're all interconnected with each other so the the kind of political economy challenge was, was developing enough of a systems understanding so that a civil servant in, say, the Department of Health could understand the parts played by a civil servant or a policy framing in the Department of the Environment and Rural Affairs and getting that kind of, we're not in silos, but we are all working at different facets of the same system and what I do affects you and what you do affects me has been the the big challenge. And it's not just a UK issue, it's obviously a global issue. Policy is typically designed in silos to do a single thing. And uh, a civil servant said to me a a few months ago, by our criteria, we design a policy to do a single thing and we ignore any of the uh, negative, unintended co-benefits or whatever as long as the object of the policy is fulfilled. And actually, I think the kind of real change in coming is to say, actually, if we're developing nutrition policy or if we're developing uh, farming technology, what are the consequences for climate, biodiversity, pollution, human health, as well as economics, and then doing a kind of whole system appraisal of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, rather than just looking through the narrow lens of yes, it will drive up economic growth uh, in this sector, irrespective of the economic degrowth in other sectors.
0: Yeah, and on the kind of the broader policy impact of trying to get out of the silos, presumably this is cross-party policy as well, rather than just democratically ele- elected government, given that changes relatively regularly.
1: <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, the, the the reality of politics is that you have one party in power, and as we know to our costs in the last year, the ideology that that underpins the way ministers approach questions is often quite polarised between left and right, So you often don't get kind of deep consensus about some things. And, you know, as I say, you just have to look at some of the debates that we've had in the UK or they've had in the US about the efficacy of mask wearing or shutdowns or whatever. It's very often that we aren't taking collectively a really rational approach to policy development. We are breaking up a policy question into what is it like in the short term for this particular sector, rather than what is its systemic effect now and for generations into the
0: future. Yeah. Another question on that, you're obviously spending a lot of time with UK government, but then international governments outside of our small borders. How does it balance between driving economic development or growth here in the UK versus actually a very kind of global big picture that all of international governments need to kind of be contributing to with cohesive policy because it's a cohesive problem. How does that work? (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) how does it work and how should it
1: work? At the moment, I mean, over the last 10 years, especially what we have seen is a a move away from the kind of relatively settled post-Second World War development of international cooperation under kind of rules-based organisations, you know, the Bretton Woods institutions like the UN or WTO. We've seen a move away from that and a move towards much more competitive international dynamics. And you only have to kind of glance at the climate change negotiations to recognise that there are very polarised views in that. There is, obviously, we've all signed up, or almost all countries have signed up to be signatories of the Paris Agreement, but the speed with which different countries are trying to implement that, implement the kind of decarbonisation, typically depends on whether they see there are short-term or long-term opportunities, as well as the inevitable short-term costs of having to change the way we do things. And of course, ideology plays into that too. If you have a government which is deeply committed, uh, libertarian-wise, to people should be allowed to do whatever they want, then the idea of saying, well, actually, we need to change lifestyles, we need to change the way we want to do things becomes ideologically difficult. And so we don't have beyond a headline agreement at UNFCCC and the Paris Agreement, we don't have global consensus on how to do this. And, you know, there is a lot of debate and a lot of political manoeuvring about what is the future of international cooperation, how can a small number of countries lead global coalitions, what's going to happen to the power dynamics between US and China, where do uh, low-income developing nations kind of fit in to their role in terms of uh, helping to mitigate and adapt to climate change, given they have less ability to invest economically in it. And they may, might need to exploit their natural resources in ways that are unsustainable in the long term to get them up to a level playing field where we've been exploiting our natural resources for hundreds and hundreds of years and created part of the problem in the first place. So there isn't really international cooperation. There's lots of international talk. There's a recognition that we need to do collectively better, otherwise effectively We uh, drive over a kind of planetary cliff together, but there isn't really consensus on how to do it at the speed that we really need to do it.
0: Yeah, I can't remember where. I think it was probably The Guardian read this morning that the UK, if it was to spend the same amount it spent on its COVID response, would be able to achieve all of its climate goals by the deadline, which I thought was rather alarming.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. But this is part of the issue in the sense that Climate change and environmental degradation and biodiversity loss are kind of seen as well. We know we're driving things in the wrong direction, but in the future, when the risks get really big, we will have invested enough in research and technology development that we will have solved the problem. So rather than pay costly means to change lifestyles now, we'll just carry on as we are and hope that the technologies get developed in the future, that the problem goes away. And of course, At one level, techno-optimism is fine, but at another level, it is deeply, deeply risky because that technology might not come to pass or not, but might not be upscalable in the way that we imagine it to be. And uh, we then might, as, as has been seen this month with the Pacific Northwest, the realities of climate change are not for the future. They're with us today. They're just slightly more patchy today than they will be in future. But you can imagine over the next decade or two, very large climate change impacts that will really reshape economies or really upset people. And those might provide a spur for governments to do things faster, more urgently, and be willing to put in short-term costs to receive long-term benefits
0: by which point you're already approaching the edge of the cliff anyway. So what's the bloody point?
1: Well, (laughs) we're very close to the edge of the cliff now. And I think, you know, interestingly, almost certainly there will be a climate change and an environmental degradation signal that underpins the emergence of COVID. And, you know, we have recognised for the last 10, 15 years or so that environmental degradation and climate change, they rewire ecosystems, they mix Pathogens with new hosts in new ways, and they're likely to lead to increased emergence of pests pests and diseases. So, COVID, in some way, shape, or form, is an example of the sorts of shocks that will come at us with increasing frequency into the future. And it might be heat and floods and storms, or it might be locusts in Africa, or it might be new diseases. But these things are going to become really importantly economically determining. And I think one of the interesting things from COVID is that we probably all recognise this, but the short-term incentives to build back as quickly as possible, rather than to use this as an opportunity to transform the system, to build back more green, more greenly, build back greener, build back better, are not being grasped. But at some stage, they have to be because we face potentially existential and systemic risks into the future. And at one stage, if those come frequently enough, we have to rebuild our economies to do things in different ways to mitigate the risks as well as to adapt to the risks. So um, there will be, I think, a tipping point in the way that we think about uh, lifestyle change, we think about the way we run our economies, we think about the way that we incentivize economic growth, and we will be forced to do things in a different way, because it's perfectly possible for us to live quite happily, and perhaps even more happily, in a transformed low-carbon economy, where we're eating the right sorts of food produced in a sustainable way, that it's perfectly possible to imagine being able to do that. It's just the current system is quite resilient to the sorts of change entrenched power relationships uh, notwithstanding all of the other things that we put in place that the environment is changing faster than our ability to govern the environmental change just like um, uh, digital technologies are developing faster than our ability to govern the changing in the technologies these things just take time and it's resilient the the system is resilient to change but eventually we will either deliberatively change it or be forced to change it i think
0: yeah and kind of a couple of things from that. The first being the science has been there for decades in terms of this becoming a ever increasingly closer problem that we need to deal with. But as you say, the systems are entrenched and therefore very resistant to change. Is it something that you can break down into smaller challenges to solve nationally and internationally, or will it take another massive systemic shock like the pandemic? to trigger everyone to be like, oh, actually, we 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 need to change this, otherwise that's going to be it.
1: I think both are important, Will. It is almost a kind of tenant of systems theory that you can't optimise the system by looking at each connection in the system in turn. And incremental change is unlikely to lead to systemic change that is planned and has the outcomes that you want it to. Yeah. So I think there is an element that we need to unshackle the shackles that create the current resistance in some way, shape or form, making it easier to disrupt the system in a new direction. But obviously, in the meantime, there is lots of scope for that unshackling, either to come from disruptive technological innovation or wider geopolitical slash climate impacts that will actually cause the system to evolve or to get shocked to and to allow it to, to evolve in a new direction. So, you know, just as an example, it's a kind of a thought experiment that we often toy with. If you imagine so so at the moment, we measure country's success in terms of its economic growth rate, uh, measured by GDP, yeah. gross domestic product. And GDP is effectively a measure of consumption to a first approximation. And if GDP is positive, that implies that year-on-year consumption rate increases. So it's an exponential growth process. So we live on a finite planet. And if we use GDP as a measure of performance and we incentivize everybody else to kind of drive economic growth, then you have exponential economic growth on a finite planet. And it's inevitably a Malthusian conundrum at some stage we will uh, run up to the limits of what is not possible anymore. And technology will potentially slightly decouple the consumption from its impacts on the environment, but it won't do it explicitly. But imagine instead if we, instead of measuring our success by consumption rate growth, we measured our success by happiness, well-being, or some kind of well-being indicators, health, harmony, Peace, stability, people's attitudes, etc. There is a well-known. Oh, there's lots of data that says uh, off, above a certain level of income, happiness doesn't increase, well-being doesn't increase. Yeah. So you would have very different policy incentives. It would be about building communities, as you know, some of the things we talked about in COVID year about people getting fractured and and alone and recognizing the value of friends and family and space and all the rest of that you could imagine a very different sort of incentive structure that would drive innovations in the right sorts of things rather than innovations that promote consumption growth above all else. So it's possible to imagine some high-level policy changes or shocks to the system or uh, citizens really saying, we've had enough, this climate anxiety is too much, let's change our lifestyle, driving the politics in a new way. But it, I think it's not going to be a simple and straightforward incremental journey. It will inevitably come with systemic shifts and tipping points in attitudes or tipping points in the way that things, things work. And if we don't do very much, we'll be, I think, subject to more volatile environments yeah. in years ahead.
0: We had an interesting conversation with Scottish Enterprise or one of the Scottish innovation funding streams last week. Who were talking very explicitly about being measured on happiness of society and all that kind of thing which i thought was a very novel but interesting way of looking at creating positive political change last thing on this and then we'll talk on more on the kind of the technological side of things but it's requiring a very big systemic change which obviously you can do at the kind of the regional and the national level in terms of it being slightly more collaborative on the international stage do you think it will take that kind of big systemic shock to get everyone going back to working together rather than competing? Or do you think it's it's just down to the individual pressurising upwards rather than being led politically downwards?
1: Yeah, that's, that's really difficult to unpick because there are a million questions kind of embedded in that. I think part of the reason for it being difficult for the systemic change is that each country is deeply embedded in a global network which is in itself very competitive. I mean, you only have to look at post-Brexit discussions on on trade relationships to realise that other countries can undercut our prices significantly, either by exerting costs onto the environment that our farmers can't do or by growing things in low welfare conditions that our farmers can't do. And what then happens if we open our borders to trade in those goods, it undercuts the farmers, our UK farmers go potentially go extinct. So you have this this very difficult situation that, although you might be kind of optimistic about local change, Local change can only go so far without the change in trade. Yeah, And the change in trade requires the partners with which we trade to agree on uh, essentially a common view of the world and to make more profit out of trading with us under a tighter kind of standards or regulatory regime than they would by selling to another country. And not all countries have the same set of values and are worried about the same things that we are. So there will always be other markets that they can go to. It's a prisoner's dilemma game at the moment where everybody's automatically kind of caught in the default race to the bottom unless we collectively agree to race to the top. And at the moment, and certainly over the last 10 years, the ability for us to collectively agree or even the major powers to collectively agree in and kind of enforce that agreement on a, on a global world has become less and less and less, whether it's Trump or Trump-China or Brazil or other countries that are increasingly populist and inward-looking, the, the kind of collective environment is perhaps making the, the risks of climate change and environmental degradation worse in the long term.
0: What a cheery subject.
1: <laughs> we'll get there. We'll
0: get there. We'll just
1: But uh, I mean to 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 answer your question, we'll be forced to get there. You know, we're having this conversation and we started off this conversation when talking about the emergence of food systems thinking. Ten years ago, none of those conversations would have happened. Now they're happening all of the time. And there's a UN Food Systems Summit for the first time. Yeah. These things are certainly changing the speed with which climate ambition is being at least claimed is much greater than it was five years ago. It's still not fast enough, but everybody's kind of leaping onto a bandwagon. The big constraint is how can you do that at least cost in a competitive world? And we will be forced into a better urgency by the way that risks mount, you know, COVIDs or floods and heat domes or whatever it might be. We'll be forced into that conversation if we aren't moving fast enough. And so I'm actually short-term pessimistic because there's a lot of hype about aren't we wonderful we're doing it when we're not doing it that we need to yeah but in the long term i'm optimistic that rationality will break out and we'll find a way
0: because it has to because it has to yeah so technological optimism in terms of novel technologies or novel applications of technology for helping solve some of these big problems or smaller parts of the big problem how does that couple with the kind of the policy framing or the government dialogue that you have at Chatham House? And have you seen anything interesting that you think realistically short-term can make any any difference?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, tackling the latter bit first. Realistically, there is a lot that's going on. You know, we have increasingly the cost of renewable energy is cheaper than the cost of delivering old energy. You know, there's a whole lot of it kind of entrenched... Uh, sunken asset type thinking around well we still need to use the coal-fired power station because we've still got a coal-fired power station and for the next 20 years that can still continue and we don't want to switch to renewable energy. But we're actually at that tipping point where certainly for electricity supply you can see a lot of positivity. Fossil fuels in general, oil and gas, it's still kind of Often an easier option to go for that, but I think in the long run we will phase it out. There's huge amounts of kind of technology in various places to do things smarter, but I think there is a fundamental issue in the way that markets worked, which which is encapsulated was first encapsulated by British economist called William Stanley Jevons in the 19th century, and he pointed out that. If you have technology that, for example, makes coal-fired power stations more efficient, you would expect to use less coal. But what actually happens is coal-fired power stations became more efficient, energy became cheaper, you used more coal because you're pushing up the aggregate demand for energy. And I think the danger of technological optimism in a market-driven society is the Jevons paradox writ large. So we can get better at doing things. If we're making a profit out of doing things better, that might drive demand. So the demand for the product is much greater than it was to start off with. So although you're making the process more efficient, the aggregate impact actually increases over time. And that challenge, I think, is very real for everybody in this sphere that things, you know, always come with unintended consequences and ultimately on a finite planet. This is about recognising that there has to be limits to demand and how can you make profit uh, within markets that, you know, by their nature will saturate because of the upper limit to, to demand. And it might be that we need a technological wheel to drive prosperity growth. Yeah. So we're developing new things all the time and the market's not saturating. But ultimately, we do have that problem that we can't have in infinite economic growth on a finite planet.
0: Awesome. So that kind of dovetails quite nicely, talking into the Energy Environment Resources Program at Chatham House. How does the department work You're also the Research Director or the Emerging Risks Research Director. So what do the two kind of positions entail? What does the team do across the two teams? And more broadly, talk us through Chatham House as well.
1: So let's start with Chatham House. Chatham House was set up after the First World War, and it was our centenary last year, lost in the midst of of COVID. And we were effectively set up following the, the situation that gave rise to the First World War as a safe space for governments to come together and have confidential conversations about issues that that were affecting them. And that's where the Chatham House rule came from, in, in the sense that you can have an open discussion, but there is still some degree of confidentiality about it. The mission of Chatham House is to help governments and societies create a more sustainably secure, just and prosperous world. And the big thing, I think, about the second century, as we're calling it now at Chatham House, is that whilst last century sustainability wasn't really part of the, well, was part of the mission of Chatham House, but we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it, we're now recognising that sustainability issues are really fundamental to every aspect of international affairs and geopolitics. So sustainability is becoming much more kind of front and central in terms of being the determinant of some of the political and geopolitical issues of the day. The Energy Environment Resources Programme is just about to be relaunched as the Environment and Society Programme. And what we do within that is a lot of work really looking at the relationship between the environment and society, hence the name, particularly around identifying what are the risks of unsustainable land, water, energy, etc. use. What are the risks of those? How can they those risks be mitigated? What will be the impact of those risks on broader political and international affairs issue? And we have kind of research clusters looking at food, land and forests, energy transition, circular economy, extractive resources, and a whole host of other kind of cross-cutting issues, climate change being the most prominent one. And then my title of uh, Research Director in Emerging Risks is really to bring the risks of environmental change and sustainability, more the need for sustainability in more general into the kind of core of Chatham House. So I run this environment and society research programme, which is a kind of silo in, in the way that departments are. But I'm increasingly working across the house as a whole to say, programme that works on Africa or the Middle East, these issues are really important to shape the politics and the economic future of your countries. How can we work together to make sure that if the Africa program's working on economic growth, it's ensuring that it's done in a way that is more sustainable to uh, manage
0: intergenerational
1: equity issues.
0: Yeah, and everyone else. And Chatham House is a charity, right? Yeah. Awesome. How can someone off the high street get involved? Can they get involved? What's the process for supporting the work that you do?
1: Chatham House is partly a membership organisation and individuals and institutions, companies, governments, etc. can become members www.chathamhouseoneword.org is the website. And the work that is funded in the research departments, including my own, typically comes from either philanthropic foundations or from institutions like companies uh, saying, we've got a research question, can you answer it? Or other bodies like like the UK government uh, gives us research funding. The webpage has got a whole lot of information. We typically publish all of our uh, research outputs and there are a whole host of interesting reports and blogs and stuff on the website a lot of our meetings we do a lot of convening pulling people together to discuss issues a lot of those are open discussion meetings and so on and those are all available on the web so have a look and uh, see if there's anything that
0: piques your interest yeah we'll put links in the podcast description and all that kind of stuff and historically you were writing quite a lot of academic research papers and editing a lot of research papers. Do you still have time to do that?
1: When I was a young academic, my most widely cited papers were effectively reviews of the literature and putting pieces together in new ways and new framings. And in academia, those sorts of approaches are often difficult to get recognition of because they don't form part of the, the real incentive structure for academics. So what actually I've done over the course of my career is increasingly write reports, opinion pieces, synthesis pieces and being at Chatham House allows me to do that really until the cows come home and my academic outputs which I still do but largely as part of collaborative groups so I'm not carrying the can writing the papers all by myself are ongoing but the joy of being at Chatham House is that it is possible to take a really key question of our time And think about it creatively in new ways and pose new ways of thinking about it or new solutions to to dealing with the problems
0: of it. Awesome. Okay. I think that pretty much covers everything I wanted to cover. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should talk about? We
1: didn't get down to the bones of technology. Yeah. And the kind of venture capital approach.
0: Let's kick that corpse (laughs) so yeah technology and the current western investment style and process what's what's wrong with it what do we need to do better from a sustainability point of view
1: i think the issue is that the way we run our economies in terms of increasing consumption growth means that the incentives for innovation are clearly what can you make the most profit from and of course then that drives innovations which are profitable rather than innovations which are effectively good for society. Yeah, right. And, you know, in a sense, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that if somebody else is investing in the innovations that are good for society, but the venture capital market is largely about how to make a profit. And again, that would be fine in a world where the wider impacts were monitored, measured, and regulated. And often we get growth in technologies which are frankly not very helpful from a long-term planetary perspective or a people's mental health perspective but are quite profitable. Uber for hamsters. Yeah (laughs) 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 and you know like innovations in electric cars rather than redesigning the transport system or developing biofuel for aeroplanes rather than finding a way to avoid the need for everybody to jump on a plane, to go to a face-to-face meeting. Yeah. Or, you know, there are, there are a whole lot of things. And to a certain extent, I think innovations can enhance the status quo by making it more difficult to create the systemic transformation because it, in a way they just layer on top of each other that if you think about we have a, a food system which is incredibly wasteful So you say, well, let's make this food system circular. So you then build in an energy plant that takes in food waste. Then it becomes much more difficult to say, actually, don't buy as much food or be more deliberative about your food choices from a health perspective, because it has the knock-on consequences of disrupting the energy supply. So the more we kind of drive these small-scale or kind of sectoral jigsaw pieces of innovation, the more we, we create the system that itself becomes resilient to change. And so obviously we can't deconstruct the innovation ecosystem, but you know there should be perhaps more environmental governance that our politicians could be willing to put in place to avoid some of the negative unintended consequences of driving up consumption growth. Or there could be a greater recognition of the societal value, even though that perhaps is more difficult to to find a business model to fund. Yeah, the, you know the, the the issues of how much public money we're spending correcting the problems that extractive capitalism and consumptive growth capitalism has led to means that, in a sense, we take a profit from one place and then we have to repay to that place to 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 reduce the costs. And if you look at it from a whole of the economy or the whole of society accounting, you often end up with a view where the the incentive structure should be quite different for for what we drive forwards.
0: Yeah, it was actually just before this, I had a really interesting chat with Pippa Gourley from Zero Carbon Capital, which is a new sustainability, hard problems, hard topics, a capital, venture capital fund that are just in the process of raising their second fund. And she was saying that it was it was an interesting moral and ethical dilemma for them as a team, balancing the need to make systemic sustainability change and also try and make some money out of it. Because yep. that's how venture capital funds are, <laughs> are set up. They're not really being a huge amount of kind of working capital sources that are looking at these massive hard problems because they are such big problems. They're very capital intensive or are, or seem to be capital intensive and therefore not working under the kind of current venture capital model. So I thought that was interesting because there are there are now investors looking at it understanding that there is a massive issue to help solve, but not very many of them.
1: And in a world where you know inequality is so great and the richest people in the world have far more capital than they can ever use other than to accumulate other capital. I don't think that this is an insoluble problem that some of the capital that is freely available can't be put towards a more system-positives intervention. I think it just requires somebody very clever to create a business model to reward those sorts of investments and you know i think there are interesting public-private partnerships and way of thinking about public-private investments that will be able to suck in investor capital to do better things and the return perhaps comes from the private purse the, the public purse yeah rather than us footing the bill for the climate impacts or us fitting the bill for covid or us footing the bill for poor diets or whatever it might be
0: yeah i would hope fingers crossed.
1: Where we started this conversation around thinking systems, these are all elements of thinking systems about the uh, how the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, and we should just st- stop thinking about individual parts and trying to design that part to, to its best and thinking about that the way that the system as a whole functions.
0: Last thing on that then, trying to have the systems-based thinking, is it driven by policy? Is it driven by industry? Is it driven by the end voter or is it driven by everyone
1: yeah all the above so 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 traditionally we would think about policy effectively setting the rules of the game uh, market players exploiting the game to make the most profit within the rules and citizens slash consumers effectively licensing the rules of the game that it's a fun game to be part of and obviously those don't work alone They actually work in some sort of tripartite interaction. And I think what we can see as the environmental change really bites and people start to get aware of it, you know, certainly the Pacific Northwest heat wave, I think, has opened lots of people's eyes about how climate change is here and now for me rather than something for the future. So as, as citizens become more aware, They will politicise issues, so politics will become more adventurous. And if politics creates regulatory change, then the market will change because its point is to make a profit within the rules. So as the rules change, they have to adapt. So I think all of those things will do come together and will increasingly come together to drive things in in, in the right way. But it does really need us to take a step back and say, climate change, biodiversity loss, air pollution all of the you know human health and diseases all of the big issues of the day are all interrelated and they have common causes and the parts fit together like this jigsaw here and if we change this piece then it fundamentally ripples all through the system and how do we make this picture look better and uh, do better in terms of prosperity for everyone environmental security and climate security for everyone, and access to healthy diets and and low disease risk and security, etc. All of those need to fit together. For the last 20 years, we've traded off too far that wealth income growth is the most important thing and everything else follows. And I think what we're all recognising now is that income growth is a small but important part of the overall picture. And we can't have uh, national security, we can't have personal security without dealing with some of these issues. And we have to find ways to to bring those into the tent and make sure that we're reducing the incentives to create a worse problem to solve today's problem of
0: in- income growth. So we can actually deal with the problem. I hope. Indeed. Well, that's a suitably positive conclusion to a rather up and down conversation. Thank you again for your time. We'll put links to Chatham House and your Twitter bio and all that kind of stuff in the podcast description so thank you very much and talk to you soon thanks for listening for more information about meta and the work we do head to our website meta.partners there you'll be able to find links to our blog the company linkedin page and more information about the team as well if you have any questions about today's episode or suggestions for future shows our twitter handle is at metatalks or one word and you'll also be able to find the team there as well we'll be back with a new episode of the podcast metatalks sometime soon so until next time have a good one